The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we're in London at the National Gallery and New York at the Metropolitan Museum. Shortly we'll hear about the National Show of Impressionists and Post-Impressionists. It links two great collections, the National's own and that of the Courtauld Gallery. And later in the podcast we visit the Met to hear about the museum's latest exhibition, Armenia. I think the exhibition shows that although Armenians have frequently been attacked by outside forces, they have also always revived and, as the works in the show indicate, remained a coherent people with an incredible tradition of art. The rooms of Impressionism and Post-Impressionism at London's National Gallery are never less than thronging with people. So it seems unthinkable that the British once had a profound distaste for Impressionism. But that was the case until well into the 20th century. A National Gallery trustee said in 1915, quote, I should as soon expect to hear of a Mormon service being conducted in St Paul's Cathedral as to see an exhibition of the modern French art rebels in the sacred precincts of Trafalgar Square. One of the people most responsible for changing tastes in modern European art was Samuel Courtauld. This week, the National Gallery opened a show dedicated to the two collections of modern work Courtauld helped build from the 1920s. One consisted of the works collected by museums through the Courtauld Fund, which are some of the works that dazzle the visitors to the National Gallery today, and the other was Courtauld's private collection built with his wife Elizabeth, one of the greatest ever assembled of work from that era, and it now forms the collection of the Courtauld Gallery. Anne Robbins, the curator of Courtauld Impressionists, joins me now. And to begin with, who was Samuel Courtauld? So he was born in, in England in 1876 and uh, in, in a family who had uh, uh, made a fortune in a textile business in the 19th century. And when he took over, uh, when, he, when he took over the business uh, in, the, uh, in the first decades of the 20th century, he really turned it into a, a multinational and, uh, and amassed uh, great uh, wealth. So he was a businessman, you know, a great collector and also a, a philanthropist, uh, really a, a key figure for the uh, cultural life uh, of this country. Anne, I wonder if we might begin by talking about what the status was for collections of post-impressionist and impressionist artists at that time because because it's quite late that the collections actually begin forming. Yes, well Samuel Courto starts uh, forming, assembling a collection for himself in 1922 and for the nation in 1923. And at that point, uh, private collectors had already formed uh, collections. But uh, Britain, British uh, museums in this country were very much uh, lagging behind when uh, it came to uh, uh, showing, representing the so-called new painting, you know, Impressionist and Post-Impressionist work. Yes, there's quite an interesting point in your catalogue essay where you say that um, Percy Moore Turner, the art dealer from whom Courtauld takes a lot of, a lot of advice, uh, has come back from America where he's been speaking to Barnes about forming that collection so that there is a sense of urgency developing. Is that is that fair? Yes, no, definitely. You know, definitely. Uh, uh, 
England was very late in starting its uh, collecting of uh, impressionist and post-impressionist work. You know, it, even in the 1920s, the, uh, uh, it was very much lagging behind. And with a few exceptions, like Sir Hugh Lane, you know, the Irish uh, dealer and collector who had formed such a collection uh, from 1905 onwards for about 10 years until his, uh, his tragic death. And the collection formed by the Davis sisters in Wales, I wasn't many people interested in the in the new painting uh, in this country. So this is a kind of a scene, you know, that's, that's, that's a, the, the state of play in uh, in Britain in the early 1920s when, uh, when, when Courtois embarks on his collecting. So private collectors have already uh, assembled uh, collections, but museums and uh, museums officials, museum curators were incredibly late in their, in their endorsement of the new painting. And this is something, this is an issue that Courtois wants to tackle, you know, so hence the uh, creation of the special fund, which uh, bore his name, the Courtois Fund, so this uh, uh, quite significant sum of money. It was £50,000, so it's a, it's a large amount. It was equivalent to 100 new suburban houses at the time, comfortable suburban houses. So we, we're talking about a, a very large sum of money, which he's going to uh, set up as a trust to address this particular issue. And he was uh, actively involved in uh, uh, administering the trust and and was uh, completely uh, uh, influential and and you know made uh, made the decisions with his uh, fellow trustees about what uh, to acquire and there's even one instance of him going very much on his own to make the purchase of the Surin. yes well that was atypical you know the, the uh, uh, decisions were made collegially. That's, that's how it was set up. There were five trustees, so including Courto himself, and then the directors of the uh, Tate and uh, National Gallery, uh, as, as you would expect, and then um, uh, you know their friends uh, Henry Bentinck and Michael Sadler, who were, who were also uh, uh, connoisseurs and collectors of this kind of, uh, of painting. And uh, and they would, you know, dealers would would come to them and uh, and suggest uh, potential acquisitions as is still the case, you know, this is how it works in, uh, in, in museums. And, uh, uh, and then these uh, potential purchases would be uh, debated uh, between themselves. So this is now, of course, that was recorded in letters long before uh, emails and, uh, and this correspondence still exists. And it's very interesting to see, of course, what they decided to reject and what, what they decided to, uh, to pursue. So in principle, I would say no, you know, Courto would always uh, consult before making the decision. But yes, in the instance of uh, the purchase of, uh, of uh, Seras Bezos, La Beignade Anière, uh, then the decision had to make very quickly because the painting uh, um, was in Paris. Sera died very young, only age 31, and that very, very large uh, picture uh, then uh, was kept by the, uh, the family and, and, and then it was passed on to, to uh, the uh, critic and uh, also dealer uh, Félix Fénéon uh, in Paris. And so the painting uh, becomes available and so via uh, Percy Turner, who was, uh, 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 you know, he was established, he had established his gallery in London, but was uh, also very well aware of uh, what was uh, on the market uh, abroad. Uh, Courtois has to has to make the decision uh, on the spot, and uh, and basically in, in just two telegrams, you know, goes ahead with the purchase, and then you you sense from the uh, 
from the letters he then writes to the director of of the Tate that he's feeling quite nervous about having done uh, the right thing, and of course that was you know the, the purchase was was met with uh, enthusiasm uh, subsequently. But at the time, there is a sense of having gone ahead, uh, spending that money without uh, having taken enough advice. But but he was, I think, there was he was really right in his intuitions. This is a, a, a wonderful, you know, the absolutely incredible thing about Courtois is that he uh, he trusted his. Uh, instinct when it came to buying pictures and very rarely got it wrong. There's there's one really interesting incident where he makes a decision about two Van Gogh paintings, the the chair, which is, remains in the, is one of the great works in the National Gallery today. And then he also bought a postman, but he had second thoughts about the postman and went back and bought the sunflowers. Yes, indeed. So that, that's, this is... Uh, so we are now in the uh, autumn of 1923 and there is a big Van Gogh retrospective. I think the first uh, retrospective of Van Gogh's work in this country at the Leicester Galleries uh, in London. And, uh, and and so the, the Court of Fund trustees take a great interest in this, uh, in this exhibition as a place from uh, which they might be able to purchase some uh, works. And they, they, from the start, they, they know that uh, Van Gogh's signature work is uh, sunflowers, and and this is what they were aiming to buy in the first place. But then Madame Van Gogh, who was the artist's sister-in-law, who was uh, uh, managing the, uh, the the estate, you know what what remained of of Van Gogh's uh, works uh, oeuvre after his uh, his death, was very reluctant to part with it and was too emotionally connected to the painting to uh, to agree to the purchase. So they settled uh, the deal on on uh, on Van Gogh's chair and. The postman Roulin, which I'm sure is a is a familiar picture, you know, is is, is now actually at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and uh, and 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 Courtois very quickly. It's, it's, this is really only a matter of weeks. Uh, has second thoughts and. Uh, and 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 so in the end persuades uh, Madame Van Gogh uh, to uh, to part with uh, with sunflowers. So the, so Postman Roulin was only part of the collection for really a few weeks. It, it, it really never went as far as having an accession number. So so it was it was swapped straight away. But of course we wish we had kept both. But this is uh, <laughs> it would have probably pr- proven very uh, expensive. Do we know what was said to Madame Van Gogh to finally make her? Uh, uh, give up the picture? No, uh, not, no, we don't have uh, that letter, that part of the uh, correspondence. But we, but but the Madame Van Gogh's letter exists. You know, the letter by which she finally agrees to sell to to part with uh, with sunflowers, and it's actually quite uh, quite moving. And and of course now the paint we, you know, the painting is one of the destination works. Uh, uh, at at the uh, at the National Gallery, so it, it's it's a very significant moment in the story of the uh, shaping of the National Collection. And in, in, yes, that's right. She 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 speaks about his reputation, doesn't it? It's, it's important for Vincent that that she sells this picture. Yes, indeed. And and she when she finally agrees to uh, to to sell it, she sends a very moving letter to the trustees of the Court of Fans, saying that she was initially reluctant to uh, to let the picture go, but that it is, and I quote her, a sacrifice for the sake of Vincent's glory. Now, what were um, Samuel Courtauld's key passions in terms of the artists he collected? Well, he's I suppose like uh, every collector, his taste uh, evolved you know, kept uh, evolving. So if you look at the paintings he started uh, his collection with, they were actually very contemporary. You know, a late Renoir, 
painted a picture painted in 1918, which he buys in 22, so a very recent, a painting by now the now long forgotten uh, artist Jean Marchand, Jean Hippolyte Marchand, uh, a, a kind of uh, in in a, in a sort of a derivative cubist vein. Uh, and and um, and I think he he very much he recentered he refocused his taste on high impressionism and this is something that he he very much uh, liked uh, you know high impressionist pictures so uh, great Monets and great Renoirs from the eighteen uh, seventies and uh, and eighties when when really the, the artists were at their peak of their uh, powers as as painters and before the art started to to go uh, to to take new directions which really happened for all of them was he always clear right from the start that, that it was going to be impressionism and post impressionism that would enter into the national collections however or did that did the sort of formation of the collection happen as it as it was going on as it were uh, yeah, well, actually, the, the the list you see with the court of fund came of came a list of artists to be acquired from the fund, and it was uh, it encompassed more uh, more painters than you would think. It had both early nineteenth century uh, painters and also uh, contemporary artists, you know, like uh, people like Durand or Marquet, or uh, it even had Picasso on it. Uh, and and then I suppose uh, again the, uh, the 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 collection was. Uh, uh, was shaped uh, with what you know not haphazardly, but but when when you're forming a collection, you depend on what is available at a given moment. Uh, so so this is the orientation it took, and and but also and significantly, there was a special clause uh, which accompanied the court of fund, which was that every picture could be exchanged or resold if a better example of the work by one of these artists became available and that that possibility was used on several occasions so it was a it was the, the collection it's, itself was a work in progress it was a constantly uh, evolving uh, thing and 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 I think in uh, what I think is interesting is that it, this is something that he uh, that Courtois enjoyed, you know, as as a private collector who was uh, forming a collection for himself, he enjoyed the possibility of being able to sell uh, pictures if if he found better ones, and it is something that he from the start wished to apply to this collection he was building for the nation. How did he feel about the separation between his private collection and the the works acquired through the fund? I think well, it's it's not something I think he ever commented on. But but he they were really even though the uh, uh, the they were formed at the same time, so in in the mid to late nineteen uh, twenties, uh, with I suppose the public collection coming first. Uh, that that's where he first placed his efforts. Uh, they, they were they were very much uh, kept uh, watertight, and I, I don't think there was really, apart from I can think of one instance of a painting having been considered for both the public collection and the private collection, which is a version of uh, Manet's Déjeuner sur l'herbe. Uh, there was uh, never such dilemmas. Uh, one because. Uh, First, the, 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 the budget that uh, Courtois had for his private collection meant that he was co- considering yet a different type of pictures in, in yet a different uh, category of, uh, of prices. And also size was an issue. You know, something like Sora's bases would never have fitted in the, uh, the, his interiors, even though it was a very grand interior at, uh, at, at Hume House in, uh, in Mayfair.
And what's interesting is that both of those collections actually formed very, were formed very quickly. Yes, yes. But for both of them, there was a kind of a, uh, Courtauld was under some kind of uh, of pressure. So f- with with regard to the private collection, the Courtauld's uh, moved in a very grand uh, house uh, on Twenty Portman Square, which still ta- stands a, 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 a very important uh, Georgian house of a, a very fine Robert Adam uh, interior in London. So they moved in in nineteen. Uh, uh, in 1926, so they had they had these empty uh, walls and and had to had to fill these uh, these rooms with great art and they were under a certain amount of pressure because they liked to entertain and they wanted their interior to look at uh, pristine as possible. And then with regard to the formation of the public collection, there was also a deadline, uh, which uh, which was the uh, the opening of the new modern foreign galleries, which were being built at the back of the Tate. So here we need to rewind a little. A bit and and go back to the war years, to the First World War, when Sir Joseph Devine, who was a, a dealer, a major major dealer, who had a very good uh, contacts with the American market, uh, gave thirty thousand pounds for the construction of new uh, galleries uh, for for the display of of modern foreign art, which was a, a, a as we said a, a part of the national collection which uh, was only burgeoning at the time. There was this, so the issue is that these great big new galleries were being built and there was nothing much to fill them with. Uh, you know, there was a few, a few isolated uh, examples of 19th century landscapes and the uh, the lane bequest. Uh, but which also included Barbizon. It was not all modern foreign pictures in in the uh, in the lane uh, bequest as, as great as uh, the, the pictures were, and then um, you know some some paintings which were obtained as long term loans to the collection. But but the, the collection still needed shaping, and uh, and you 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 get a sense if you look at the the pattern of purchases. Uh, the, made from the Court of Fund, there's, there's a sense of urgency towards the spring of uh, 1926, because the official inauguration was, I think, on the 26th of June 1926, and and suddenly the pace quickens in the spring because I think for that very, very reason is that the the, the, uh, the, the opening, the uh, official unveiling is now imminent, and these galleries need to be need to be filled. And and yet it doesn't diminish the quality. I mean, there is, there are, the quality of the work is so high; it's extraordinary that within a very short space. Of time and with these pressing deadlines they still acquired extraordinary pictures no absolutely i think it is what's striking about our exhibition is that the uh, the quality of the works is consistently high i mean they did not uh, get get it uh, wrong i think it, it, it's quite uh, impressive uh, really and let's talk about the exhibition then because you've chosen not to separate the two collections and and i love this about the show that that there are works that normally are separated by a sort of a half mile along the strand in in london and actually now they're on the same walls and for instance a, a couple of duga portraits which i love in both in, in one in each institution are suddenly there together on the same wall this is a really uh, thrilling aspect of this project i'm sure for you too Yes, well, we we you know we thought long and hard about how to organise the uh, uh, the pictures. You know, we have it's a great great opportunity to uh, to to house temporarily at the National Gallery some of the uh, you know world famous pictures from the uh, uh, from from the Courto Gallery. So we we uh, the, 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 we we all agreed that the story is the story we wanted to tell from the outset was. Uh, 
of these this two uh, collections being formed uh, simultaneously. And also we wanted to, uh, to look at the, uh, emphasize the links uh, between Samuel Courtauld and the, and the National Gallery and, and the National Collection. So, uh, so, so we thought, yes, that it would make the exhibition, uh, the demonstration more, uh, uh, more interesting if we merge the two uh, collections. Uh, and this has had not been done uh, since 1948, uh, and, and at the time, that was at the Tate. It was a memorial exhibition organized immediately after Samuel Courtauld's death. And then again, the two collections were brought together in Paris in 1955 at the Musée de l'Orangerie. Uh, so, so a, a while ago, and, and in the, uh, in, in the, 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 the few occasions when some uh, Courtauld pictures were shown uh, on Trafalgar Square in the 70s and 80s, again, they were shown Isolately, you know, dis- distinct from uh, from our own uh, collection. So we, we we thought that was the moment to do it. We had a, a, a you know, it was a great opportunity uh, for us, and it really enables you to to, to in- enables you to better uh, understand and assess uh, Courtauld's taste, and you really get a sense of the kind of uh, pictures uh, he was interested in and wanted to. Uh, uh, to enjoy uh, personally, uh, you know, at home, but also the, the kind of art he wanted to uh, the public to uh, to to understand and enjoy. And is it right that it, it's this was for a very brief period a possible uh, future for these two collections anyway? That that for a while Samuel Courtauld thought he may give his private collection to the National, but then he came up with the idea to form an institute and that's ultimately where they went and, and we now have the Courtauld Gallery and, the, and, the, and the, the fund works in the National. I think it's rather that, that the museum's official like director of the Tate and the, uh, the director of the National Gallery for a while assumed that uh, Courtauld was going to... Uh, to do that, to have this intention of leaving the, his, uh, his, his, you know, formidable collection to, uh, uh, to the nation, and and they, they for for instance, when the, the fund are considering the purchase of a uh, Cezanne. Uh, so Aitken and Holmes, who were respectively directors of the Tate and the National Gallery, were still extremely uh, reticent, and uh, un- unbelievably so. But uh, that, that was the yes, exactly the state of play when it came to uh, the appreciation of works by Cézanne in the twenties. And and they say in their exchange of letters that they don't really need to bother about Cézanne because Samuel is going to end up leaving them. He is to the nation, and that's why. Uh, only two works by Cézanne were bought from the Court of Fern. So incredibly significant because it, it, it is uh, that it was the first time a, uh, a, a museum in this country so uh, endorsed the art of Cézanne in such an official way. But but you know st- we, I suppose they could have done uh, more. They could have bought more. And in fact, the second one, Hillside in Provence. Uh, was uh, only uh, purchased because uh, Courtauld uh, gave some extra money from his pocket uh, for for the purchase because by then the Courtauld fund was almost uh, exhausted and so he gave a top up uh, uh, for for that picture so yes i think there was the assumption that um Courtauld's paintings were going to uh, to join the national collection and then things to, took a different turn his wife uh, uh, sadly dies very early in 1931 and and at the time the uh, project of uh, this new Institute for the study of art history uh, starts to shape up, uh, and he's uh, so he's he he, he joins that, uh, that that project and embarks on that new uh, adventure with uh, uh, with uh, Lord Lee, and 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 this results in the creation of uh, of, of the Courtauld Institute in in 1932, to which Courtauld gives both uh, his name, uh, his house, and his collection.
the interesting thing about that anecdote which you've just given about the the ta- directors of the Tate and the National sort of being relatively reticent, it, I think that illustrates just how important Coulthard is in the uh, the cultural life of this country because these works have now become some of the landmark works in our institutions and such a passion for impressionism and post-impressionism might never have happened had it not been for Samuel Coulter's commitment to them. Yes, exactly. It needed someone with a great, with with uh, the financial means to make this happen and with the determination and the farsightedness and he had all of that and, and also was very keen, you know, even though he was uh, primarily a, a, shaping a collection for himself as well but he very much wanted the paintings that he uh, that he so much enjoyed to be made accessible and uh, by, by the widest number of people possible he, he was very very public spirited and uh, and and he wanted the, uh, the 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 largest possible number of people to be able to uh, to understand the, uh, the impressionist and post impressionist works and thank you so much thank you Courtauld Impressionists is at the National Gallery in London until the 20th of January. We're off to Armenia at the Metropolitan Museum after this. The Victorian neoclassicist painter John Godwood suffered his fair share of tragedy. He ran off to Italy with one of his models and was forced to live abroad after being disowned by his parents. Finally returning home in 1921, his work was seen by critics as out of touch. But Godwood's admirers, of which there were many, found the painter's soft-cheeked girls in Roman togas a winning combination. And so do we, says Bonham's director of 19th century art, Charles O'Brien. Next week's sale in London features Godwood's exquisite Dolce Farniente, an idealised version of a kinder, gentler, less complicated world which is now enjoying renewed acclaim. Welcome back. And now over to New York, where Nancy Kenny, the senior editor of the art newspaper, has been to hear about a new exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum. I'm joined here at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York by Helen Evans, curator of the exhibition simply titled Armenia with an exclamation point. The Met's exhibition on Armenia in the medieval period draws together an extraordinary range of objects from around the world, sumptuous manuscripts, carvings, reliquaries, while also investigating the complex web of Armenia's interactions. We learn of cross-currents with a multitude of different cultures. What prompted you to undertake this ambitious show? Um, I did my dissertation on Armenian art of the medieval period from uh, manuscripts all illuminated in their kingdom of Cilicia, which is a kingdom of uh, established by Armenians on the Mediterranean, and the exploration of all the sources drawn together there are, in a way, um, what this exhibition is about. How many years was it in the making? I wrote my dissertation longer ago, <laughs> I want to admit. So in a sense, I've been wanting to do this exhibition for decades. This particular exhibition is about five years in the making. I see. Many of the objects on view are exceedingly fragile and had never traveled to the United States until now. Some hadn't even traveled for centuries. How did you persuade institutions in Armenia and elsewhere to part with them? The most difficult part was uh, working with the institutions in Armenia because they had not lent to the Met before. Uh, we had the great um, good fortune that um, 
there was an interest on part of the Ministry of Culture in Armenia in having an exhibition in America, and we met with Armenians, um, Armenia and American Armenians about a show, and then our department head, Griff Mann, and I went and um, talked with the institutions in Armenia about the exhibition plan, what we would like to borrow, and we built um, a belief that lending to a place that seems so very distant because you have to go across so much water would be something that would be a safe thing to do for these works which matter so much to the Armenians. Armenia is described as the first nation to convert to Christianity as far back as A.D. 301. How did this play out in Armenian art and culture in that period? Armenians, um, by their conversion to Christianity at the very beginning of the 4th century, and by, over the next several centuries, developing their faith into a uniquely Armenian autocephalous Christian church, uh, began the development of a visual and a theological literary culture tied to their Christian identity. And in the beginning, it, of course, is their Christianity as opposed to the Church of Constantinople, the larger universal church. But then when their territories become um, increasingly occupied by the Islamic world. It's the way they maintain self-identity in a, in a larger world of the other. A century later, you have the invention of the Armenian alphabet. What was the impact on Armenian art? The Armenian alphabet is a deliberate invention to spread uh, Christian writings in the language of the Armenians so that one would not have to hear a sermon in Persian or in Greek or in um, languages that the population wouldn't know. And with that development, you get manuscripts and you get eliminations in manuscripts. You get the beginning of literature also. So it's a critical element of um, the development of Armenian culture uh, that is attributed to Mesrop Mashtat. So there's, he, the man who invents it is himself a saint. One type of object that seems to have pride of place in the show is the hachkar, a type of stone slab incised with a cross. Can you tell us about them? The Armenians from the Middle Ages have used extensively these often monumental stone slabs on which the face has at least a cross, sometimes um, other motifs also, um, and at times figurative images. We think of Hotchkars as huge monumental monumental works. At the end of the show, there's one that's about a foot by a foot. So they range in size tremendously. In modern times, uh, the Hotchkars become more or less the symbol of the Armenians. So when the Armenians uh, became an independent state in the 90s, the gift that the Armenians give to the United Nations is a quite beautiful Hotchkar that spent a number of years at the Met while the UN was being uh, renovated. I think if you were to go back to the year 1000, the Armenians would have considered their symbol to be the gospel book. To what extent, if any, does the research for your show rest on recent archaeological discoveries? A certain amount of it, as much as possible, is related to recent discoveries. Um, we have some wonderful pieces of jewelry from Devin. And that's a city in the Republic of Armenia that was incredibly rich and powerful <laughs> and then was destroyed uh, by Timurlane. And, and so now it's a pretty much open area of archaeological digs. The jewelry is something that we that has not been shown before. Other sites are 
like Ani is, are places where one is trying to do massive historic preservation. Uh, but the works that we're borrowing were actually found in the late 1800s. Over the centuries, Armenia was subject to waves of invasions and subsequent migrations of its people to the Crimea, Italy, Iran, locations farther east. In your view, is it a tragic history? I think that for many Armenians, um, it is viewed as a tragic history. I think the exhibition shows that although Armenians have frequently been as other cultures have um, attacked by outside forces, they have also always revived and, as the works in the show indicate, um, remained a coherent people with um, incredible tradition of art. So I perhaps see it as tragic with um, perhaps great rays of sunshine. In the 7th century, Muslim forces invaded from Mecca and Medina. How was Armenian art and culture affected by the role of Muslim states? And how, in turn, was Islamic art influenced by Armenian art? Well, certainly the invasion and occupation by um, a great variety of Muslim forces over time intensifies the Christian identity. We look at a, a large hotch car with a cross on it and think, that's nice. We don't tend to think that it was a statement where your rulers, in fact, disagreed with its meanings. So that it was a braver statement to put it up than our rather open, secular American culture lets us identify with. Armenian artists work for Muslims. Muslims work for Armenians. There are elements of the exhibition where images may have influenced the development of the Compendium of Chronicles, uh, this world history done for the Mon- Mongols, are patterns used in tiles and bowls in the Ottoman Empire, and in exchange, some of the interlaced patterns that we see are certainly aligned with Islamic taste. And I love the little earrings in the first gallery where the figures are seated cross-legged. Um, Armenians lived in the same culture that the Muslims lived in, and possibly cross-leggedness is before either one of them as a way to sit in a uh, environment. So it's an, a complicated question. Both sides have influence on the other. You also have the impact of the Crusades. Did Western Europeans have a significant influence in Armenian art in the period, or vice versa? Oh, the Crusades and the Armenians is my dissertation. <laughs> yes, um, The Armenians are the most powerful East Christian state for most of the Crusades. Byzantium, the empire um, which has been so powerful, is conquered by the Crusaders in 1204. And the Armenians um, are so important to the Crusaders that there's no Crusader state that has not intermarried with the Armenian aristocracy. Louis IX, King of France, the Saint-Chapelle in Paris, is an ally of the Armenians. He leaves his uh, young wards in Armenia as uh, the wards of the King of Armenia. Uh, We have in the galleries a moralized Bible from Paris that has motifs that appear in Armenian manuscripts, and there are elements of Armenian taste that would appear to also have moved east. We have the fleur-de-lis of France on one of the manuscript illuminations. Then there are the Mongol advances into Armenian lands in the 13th century. How did Armenian art and culture fare under these new overlords? 
like everybody that the Mongols advanced on, the first generation is destruction and devastation, and we have moving colophons, inscriptions and manuscripts of the Mongols coming through and destroying everything. But in the aftermath, the Armenians become um, a vast uh, power on the trade routes across what we call the Pax Mongolica, all the lands under Mongol rule, which includes China, Russia, all of Central Asia, and even my uh, dissertation topic, the Kingdom of Cilicia, is a vassal of the Mongols. And so parts of um, that period, the Mongols um, are not a great problem for the Armenians. They flourish very, very well, and we have objects in the show that show vastly uh, beautiful, elaborate reliquaries and carvings from the Mongol period. Is the story of Armenian culture therefore one of assimilation, would you say, of cosmopolitanism? I think that the Armenians cope with rather than assimilate. I think they always use their Christianity as a way to remain a distinct, um, cohesive unit within larger groups, and that because of their extensive trade routes, the uh, interactive map we have ends up from Jamestown, Virginia to Manila in the Philippines. They have multiple sources that they can uh, borrow from if they wish and that they are very selective over time in what they adapt into their culture and what they export to other cultures. Amid successive invasions, the Armenian church and its schools and monasteries and libraries seem to have emerged as keepers of a national identity. How was that reflected in the show? The, the Armenian churches and monasteries certainly have uh, maintained the Armenian identity, and the exhibition, almost three-fourths of it, is borrowed from those repositories of Armenian culture. It, to a degree, this exhibition celebrates the Armenian ability to preserve its own culture from the Republic of Armenia to the Great House of Cilicia in Lebanon to the Mechtaris Fathers in Venice, the Brotherhood of St. James in Jerusalem, and various other Armenians who have small collections. It is um, a community that has sought very hard to preserve its traditions, and we are very proud of being able to show them here. Of all the gorgeous objects you've assembled for the exhibition, do you have any personal favorites to single out? It's a wonderful question. Every single one is a favorite. We selected them very carefully to make points, but at the very end of the exhibition, we have a gilded book cover that shows um, the head of the Armenian church preparing the chrism, which is the oil for anointing that's done every seven years. And he stirs it with the arm reliquary of Gregory the Illuminator, who is the official converter of the Armenians. And we have a photograph of the current hierarchy of the Armenian church uh, when they did that a few years ago. What I find quite wonderful about that work is the covering um, holds an early 14th century manuscript, and when all the Armenians who died in the early 20th century were turned into saints recently, that book is what they used to um, determine how to make a saint in the Armenian church. So we have something that is a document of the medieval period that is also something that was um, incredibly important. Um, to the Armenians within the last decade. Tell me about another favorite. I adore uh, two of the manuscripts in the uh, Cilician galleries because they show an Archbishop John 
a, a gentleman um, who likes pretty clothing, and in one, he's it's in the late 1200s, and his brother is the king of Armenia. And in the first one, he's a relatively young man, and his vestments include the fleur de of France. And in the second one, the year uh, he dies, his vestments include um, a robe with a Chinese dragon. And we have a fabric that matches each of those vestments. And I find it wonderful because it is the extent of the trade routes the Armenians control under the Mongols from Western Europe, their alliances with France, all the way to China and dragons. And within that, they work out a world that we can see as you go through the galleries is still distinctly something the Armenians have made for themselves, not in isolation, but in a connection with a very wide world. Your narrative of Armenia's medieval age seems to stretch into the 17th century. How did you date the end of the medieval period? The 17th century seems kind of surprising. Um, we dated the Middle Ages by, and that's why I often refer to their Middle Ages, from the conversion to Christianity to what is often used to describe the end of the Middle Ages, which is the arrival of printed books. And it's at the end of the 17th century that you get massive numbers of books printed in Armenian, although they are actually printed in Europe, not in the uh, Armenian lands in the beginning. So we opened with the conversion to Christianity, and we close with a row of books. So first printed book is in 1500, and it's for travelers, for merchants. And then in 1666, there is a Bible printed in Armenian that uses woodblock prints from a Dutch Bible because it's printed in Amsterdam. And that helps spread uh, Western images in the East. Um, The two maps that wonderfully bracket the end of the show, right at the end of the 1600s, um, in a way are what Armenia's entire history is. One is a wonderful map. It's 10 feet long of all the Armenian churches in the Ottoman Empire drawn by an Armenian for Bolognese nobleman uh, that is fascinating to look at. And the style, to a degree, is Eastern in the way the drawings are uh, done, although the architectural renderings are very, very excellently specific. And then just a few years later, within the same decade, in Amsterdam, a huge map is printed of the entire world that looks just like what any French king, English king, German noblemen would want to own if they were showing their affluence and elegance. It's all in Armenian. It's printed for the rich merchants of Armenia. And there's one phrase in Persian, so we believe it's printed to be sold to the merchant elite of the Safavid Empire in Persia because the Armenians control all of its external trade. When did the printing press arrive in Armenia itself? The The printing press doesn't really arrive in Armenia. Um, until the very early 1700s. There, uh, one of the last manuscripts is a Josephus's history of the war against the Romans printed in Etchmizin, which is the Vatican of the Armenian church, and it's early 1700s. Uh, the Ottomans and the Persians are not tremendously interested in all of their populations having printing presses, and the technology is very sophisticated. So you have to have money and you have to have trained people. So it's, we think of printing presses as being no problem, but they actually were 
in their own time, an amazingly complex technology to import and to begin. Thank you for joining us today, Helen. Thank you for being interested in Armenia. I think it is a a show that offers um, a vision of a people that we don't appreciate fully how very important their art is to the world's art. Thank you for having me. Armenia opens tomorrow and is at the Metropolitan Museum until the 13th of January. And that's all for this week. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to it and do also follow us on our new Twitter account at Tan Audio. That's at T-A-N Audio. You can also find our main Twitter and Facebook accounts at The Art Newspaper. And our Instagram is at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks to Nancy Kenny, Helen Evans and Anne Robbins and thank you for listening. See you next week. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.